in what I say. I intend to be as biblical um, as possible. Um, but if you kind of struggle with some of the things that I'm saying, do save it to the end and ask questions of clarification and push me. I'm very happy um, to do that um, with you. Uh, as Sandy said, there's a handout for everybody so you can see where I'm going and follow up some of the references um, if you would like to, to do that. I've spent the last... 20-odd years uh, living in East London, uh, mostly amongst uh, Bangladeshi people. Uh, as Sandy said, I also spent some time with my family uh, in Bangladesh, learning as much of the local language there that people in Tower Hamlet speak, uh, Sileti. also spent uh, another year in Bangladesh working uh, back in the 90s. But most of what's uh, down here is from experience of working amongst, living amongst Um, enjoying the hospitality of uh, Bangladeshi friends, of doing talks in mosques like East London Mosque um, and elsewhere, Uh, doing joint events uh, with Islamic societies at universities alongside Christian unions, Um, some of my own study, and just talking and sitting under Muslim people uh, in terms of what they are teaching. I'm trying not to um, misrepresent, not to use Christian sources um, about Islam, but Islam's own sources um, to try and get a, a balanced perspective as I can. But again, please do ask questions about that. Just your first page um, of the handout, Muslim people and Islam. How do we feel about some of these things? That picture on your left is of a, a Fox News um, presenter interviewing, or rather listening to, um, Steve Emerson, an expert, a so-called expert on terrorism, just after the Charlie Hebdo killings. He's talking about Europe being taken over by Muslims. He said this, this direct quote, and again, you can follow it on YouTube if you want to. In Britain, it's not just no-go zones. There are actual cities like Birmingham that are totally Muslim, where non-Muslims just simply don't go in. And parts of London, there are actually Muslim religious police that actually beat and actually wound seriously anyone who doesn't dress according to Muslim religious attire. Maybe he thinks using the word actually as many times as possible makes something true. A poem on your left. Walking through a crowded place, judgmental stares apparent on every face. For actions taken in my name, you think that I am in disgrace? You refuse my hand, you ignore my embrace. What did I do to deserve this hate? I wear a headscarf. My dad has a beard. You mock me and say I'm weird. I fast, I pray, I volunteer. Yet still I am unwelcome here, practicing my faith in constant fear. Terrorists to face Islam as they ravage and ruin the common man. That is not my faith and not Islam. Don't assume it is. We're about Salam. Don't hold me accountable for the insane, as all around you'll see the same. That was from a teenager's poem. A Muslim teenager's poem. I've been visiting a local mosque in Whitechapel um, and I wanted to talk to the imam before I, I, I went in on Friday prayer time to listen to his sermon, just to say, would it be all right if I just sat at the back and listened to your sermon and talked with you about it afterwards? The first thing he asked me was, are you MI5? I said, no. Now, whether someone from MI5 would admit is another point. The second thing he said was, are you Daily Mail? I said, No. But that was his fear, his fear of the security services listening to his sermons or the Daily Mail doing some kind of undercover mosque expose. He, like this teenager, was fearful of practicing his faith in this country. 
Uh, you've got a picture there on the right of a stall in Whitechapel Market um, with um, models with um, the head covering. I was there this morning, yesterday morning with my son, and he said it feels like Bangladesh here. He can remember living in Bangladesh. And then a quote in a box from a book published in this country um, by the Islamic Mission in 1986. We are here to stay, we are here to plant Islam in this part of the world, and we must utilise everything in our power to make the word of Allah supreme. I have a friend who's a footballer. We play football together most Thursdays, um, and at one time we had a social as a, as a team, and we went um, ten-pin bowling just at Surrey Keys, and had a good chat with, with Yusuf, my friend, um, about various things to do with both of our faiths, to do with politics, and all kinds of things. And he said, yes, I want Islam to be the religion of this country. Um, I'm tempted to go to Syria, he said, but I'm not, I'm here. Just from these different quotes then, from friends of mine, from walking in Whitechapel, from YouTube, from poems, there's lots of things going on about Islam in our faces, in our world, in our media. How do we respond to these things as Christian people? Do we get fearful? Do we get fearful that Whitechapel High Street has become Bangladesh and the rest of Tower Hamlets is going to become Bangladesh and we're going to get taken over by Muslim people? Sometimes I can feel like that as I come out of my door and it feels like I'm in Bangladesh. Where's my country gone, I can think? And it's not a short step from fearing people to really not liking them being here in my space. It's not a short step, really, from fear to to loathing, to hating these people. But what I have to do in such times is preach to myself, not fear and loathing, but faith and love. That's the bottom of page one there. Faith and love. Faith in a big, sovereign, loving, kind, heavenly Father, who's in control of everything. The Apostle Paul in Acts 17 when he was preaching in Athens, said that God determines the times and places that people live in. He's determined that there are 80,000 Bangladeshi people living in Tower Hamlets. Just as Babylon is at the gates of Israel, going to send them into exile in the 7th, 8th century BC, Isaiah, the prophet, is given a word from the Lord to say, comfort, comfort my people. Yes, it's going to get bad, but actually... God, your God is in control. These nations are as nothing. Their idols are as nothing. Trust me, trust me now and for the future. Even if things turn bad, I am still in control. So I I try and preach faith in this big, sovereign, loving Father to myself. I also try and preach love. Love for Muslim people as people. It's very obvious, isn't it? But so often I forget these are People And Muslim is an adjective to describe people. People made in God's image, like everybody. Genesis 1 says that all people are made in God's image. All people, therefore, are worthy of respect and dignity to be shown to them. But as we know, all people everywhere are not living out that image. You meet everybody. Like Adam and Eve in Genesis 3, we are fallen. We get things wrong. We sin. We're under God's judgment. And so we all need the love that God offers through his son Jesus. God loved this fallen, this sinful world, this world that follows after Adam and Eve by sending his son into it, John 3.16 tells us. 
And the son who came into the world tells me to love my neighbor. The son who came into the world also tells me to love my enemy. So whatever we think of Muslim people, whether neighbor or enemy, Jesus says love them. I don't think there's a category outside of neighbor or enemy, is there? And Jesus says love them. So as I walk out of my door in Tower Hamlets, I'm often preaching to myself faith and love. Now that might not be your feelings, that might not be your reaction, but I find that has to be my first response as a Christian to Islam, faith and love. Page two comes at another response. Seeing Islam through the lens of the transfiguration. We're going to look briefly at the transfiguration account in Luke's Gospel. In Luke chapters 1 to 8, we have those famous Christmas stories. Jesus is born of a virgin. He's proclaimed by angels his conception and his birth. He resists temptation in ways that no one else has ever done. Particularly Adam didn't do that. He proclaims good news of liberation to the oppressed. He brings forgiveness to all kinds of people. He's authenticated by miracles. He does amazing things to show the the new creation that he can bring in. That's Luke chapters 1 to 8. And by this stage in Luke's gospel, people are wondering, who is this guy? And that's a question that Jesus asks. Who do you say that I am? A bit earlier on, Herod is wondering this. Maybe he's John the Baptist come back from the dead, who he executed. Maybe he's another prophet. And when Jesus asks, who do you say that I am? To his disciples, they say, well, some people say a prophet. Some people say this. But Peter says, no, you're not another prophet. You're the Christ. And Jesus says, you're right. I'm the long-promised king who will die and rise again. And immediately after saying those things, he teaches his disciples how they should follow him, taking up their cross, denying themselves. And then this account happens, which I printed on your sheet. Now, about eight days after these sayings, Jesus took with him Peter and John and James and went up on a mountain to pray. We know mountains are quite important in Bible times. Mount Sinai with Moses going up it, Mount Carmel with Elijah and the the, the kind of prophets battle up there. And as Jesus was praying, the appearance of his face was altered and his clothing became dazzling white. And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure. The Greek word behind departure is the word exodus, the second book of the Bible, exodus, the great rescue story of God's people. So Moses and Elijah are speaking with Jesus about the rescue he's going to do in Jerusalem. So they spoke of his departure, which he's about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep, but when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. And as the men were parting from him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it's good we're here. Let us make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah, not knowing what he said. As he was saying these things, a cloud came and overshadowed them, a bit like the cloud at Mount Sinai, full of thunder and lightning and fear as God descended. And they were afraid as they entered the cloud. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. And when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone. And they kept silent and told no one in those days anything of what they'd seen. At the end of that scene there, Jesus is left alone. Moses isn't there. Elijah isn't there. 
And that's partly to visually show us that Jesus is greater than Moses. He's greater than Elijah. Moses brought the law. Elijah enforced the law. But Jesus is greater than both of those great prophets. Because he's God's son. As the next bullet point says, he knows where he's going. He knows he's going to Jerusalem on an exodus, a rescue mission. He's the unique rescuer that's been sent into the world to rescue people from sin, from judgment, from hell, as many of his parables in Luke's gospel tell us about. He's God's son and he knows where he's going. And he's God's chosen one and must be listened to. The voice from the cloud says, listen to him. Jesus is the unique revealer of who God is, of how he wants us to live, of how we follow him. No prophet can reveal as well as Jesus can because of who he is. The son is closer to the father and can reveal him better than any prophet, any human mere prophet can. He's the unique revealer and the unique rescuer. But when it comes to Islam, my Muslim friends tell me all prophets are the same. Islam relativizes the prophets. It says that, that Jesus, that Moses, that Elijah, that Abraham, and all the other um, uh, prophets in the Old Testament or characters that we know are, are all the same. There's no difference between them. And Islam clearly teaches that Jesus is not the Son of God. It's very plain from different references within the Quran. And my Muslim friends, he is not the Son of God. Do not say he is Son, says the Quran. And it's very clear, too, that he didn't die. Surah 4, verse 157, says it just seemed to people that he died. He did not die. And Islam is very clear, too. There is no father, no son, and no spirit as who God is. Islam denies key truths of the transfiguration here. And there are common objections my Muslim friends have, whether in Bangladesh or this, this country, Every Muslim friend I've got to know has had these three objections. Jesus is not the Son of God. He didn't die in the Trinity. Come on, that's just not true. But those are key parts of the Christian faith that show us who God is and how we can know him through this rescue. The fourth big objection that my friends in Bangladesh or Tower Hamlets tell me about my faith is the Bible has been corrupted. Now, I don't think the Quran actually teaches that. But obviously, my Muslim friends have to say that because the Bible teaches that Jesus is the Son of God, that he did die, and that the Trinity is true. So the Bible and the Quran disagree. So one of them must be wrong. And if you're a Muslim, it makes sense to say, well, the Bible has been changed, it's been corrupted, it's not right. And yet, actually, I think the Quran teaches that it confirms the previous scriptures. Often, Muhammad is saying, go back to the previous scriptures to confirm what I am saying to you. And the Quran says that Allah doesn't allow his words to be changed. So any verses in the Quran that seem to talk about uh, the, the scriptures in a bad way seem about misinterpreting or misquoting them rather than the text, the written text of the scriptures being changed. But even as Islam relativizes prophets and says they're all the same, it tries to give Muhammad a much higher role. So we'll come on to it in a minute or two. It compares Muhammad to Moses. It says, just like he was opposed by different people, like the Pharaoh, so Muhammad was. Just like Moses brought a law, that's what Muhammad is doing. 
And just like Elijah had to enforce the law against idolaters, so that's what Muhammad is doing. But actually, it leaves us with a very different Jesus. And it cuts out the heart of the gospel. It leads us with a Jesus who cannot reveal God uniquely, who cannot rescue us perfectly. In some ways, it seems like an Arabized version of the Mosaic law of Judaism, when you look at what it's saying. It's interesting when some of the first Christians met uh, Muslim people in Syria, someone like St. John of Damascus, he called Islam a heresy of the Ishmaelites. It was similar but different to what we believe It wasn't completely a new religion. There are similarities but differences there. But in all of this then, I hope we can see that as Christian people, we need to know our faith. When we're talking with our Muslim friends, we need to know why we believe that Jesus is the Son of God, why he died, and why the Trinity is a glorious truth. We need to know our faith to answer our friends' objections and so they can be introduced to this Jesus who can reveal God to them, who can rescue them from their sins like he's rescued us from our sins. They need to hear about Jesus the Messiah, God's son, God's chosen one, who died and rose again for all kinds of people. So that's our second response, I think, to Islam and to Muslim people. Turn over for a third response. We've kind of been dealing at, not a high level, that's a bit too high for looting, but a kind of a a textual level of Islam, looking a little bit about the Quran and its objections. What about our our Muslim friends? Well, first of all, there are many Islams in a way. There are 1.2, 1.3, maybe 1.4 billion Muslim people around the world. And none of them are exactly alike, just like we're not exactly alike if we're Christian people. Much better to find out from your friends what they believe what they think, rather than take it from me. But here are some questions that I found helpful just to ask my friends to see what they they do believe and understand. So what does it mean for you to be a Muslim? Do you go to mosque? Do you watch Islamic TV or have a favourite preacher? A lot of my Bangladeshi friends, when we go round to their house, they will put on Islamic TV for us to watch and to enjoy sometimes. Um, Not always. Um, But yeah, friends often watch it. Would you call yourself a perfect Muslim? Do you think someone can be? When you die, will you go to paradise? These are important questions for anybody to deal with. And it's, we can talk about these things with our Muslim friends. I, I've never found a, a Muslim friend um, upset by talking about these kinds of things. They like talking about their religion. We like talking about ours. Let's talk about these things. And what I want to do is open up the Bible with people so they can see who Jesus is. That's the last question there. Can I explain what the Bible is to you if you haven't read it? And then some other questions there from another book. What do you think God is like? What is your experience of grace? Does God love you? My wife last night went to an event a little bit like this, but kind of the opposite. In East London Mosque, a Muslim friend invited her uh, to a meeting promoting Islam, saying this is what Islam is, come and join us, really. And and the, the man who was speaking there was talking about God and was talking about God's grace that he had experienced. So these aren't bad questions to ask people. But all Muslims people are different. Um, I was talking, there's a little group um, at church um, we have of people from a different Muslim background. We've got a Nigerian, um, a Sierra Leonean, Bangladeshi, Pakistani, Moroccan, um, and Egyptian. We're just talking about what their experience of Islam had been, and what it's like now following Jesus. 
And it's interesting that um, the West African uh, Muslim background followers of Jesus said, when, when we were Muslim people, we were tremendously burdened by our sin. We could never please God. We knew we could never please God. But my Bangladeshi um, background, followers of Jesus, um, oh, that was never a problem. Sin didn't care about it in any way. They're very different. But we can ask about these things of our friends. That said, most Muslim people would go along with the five pillars or, and six beliefs of Islam that we were probably taught in our RE lessons or can read about in books. Um, and here are the, kind of the, the key, key things, um, key uh, beliefs and key practices for Muslim people. The shahada, the profession of faith. If you say there is no God but God and Muhammad is his prophet, with the implication being the last prophet, that makes you a, a Muslim person. When I was in um, East London Mosque a while ago, they had someone up the front saying that. And everyone clapped because that was, he was, he'd become a Muslim at that point. Uh, second pillar, um, salat or prayer. Um, five times a day, Muslim people are to pray. Now, my Muslim friends do pray. They ask God for things. But in many ways, this five times a day is not really prayer as we know. It's more about submission. It's showing Allah that I am submitting to him. It's taking time out of the day. He's more important than what's going on in my day. It's bowing before him. It's prostrating. It's kneeling. It's showing by your body you're submitting to him five times a day. And in the hadith, in um, the the writings um, about Muhammad's life and what he said, uh, Muhammad was um, told to say that if you go to Friday prayers, which is the equivalent of our our Sunday um, service, if you sit quietly, listen to the sermon, don't disturb anybody, you'll be forgiven that week's sins. Which is why often Friday prayers are very full in mosques. Uh, third pillar, fasting. Uh, in the month of Ramadan, 30 days, uh, between first light and first dark, um, nothing should be swallowed. And that's really hard in the northern hemisphere at the moment when Ramadan is in June. That's a lot of fasting. It's a hard work thing. Um, zakat, almsgiving, uh, giving a proportion of your, your wealth um, if you have that, that level of wealth away. And then fifth pillar, pilgrimage, if you can afford it, to go on Hajj to Mecca. And the, 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 the particular pilgrimage time this year fell in the summer holidays. And so many of my friends went off uh, to Mecca. It's very costly, five or six thousand pounds per person to have a Hajj package. It's quite an expensive thing to do, but people want to do it. Because again, the Hadith teaches that if you do it all properly, you will come back like a newborn baby, like you've been cleansed from your sin. Like that famous born-again verse that Jesus gives, except it's by the Spirit and by water that you're born again. And one, one friend of mine, very, uh, I'd asked him, have you been, ever been on a pilgrimage? Have you been to Mecca? And he said, no, not yet. I want to do all my naughtiness first. And then he'd come back. It's very honest. But actually, that's why many want to go each year to cover over all their naughtiness so they can come back new and hopefully ready for judgment day. So five pillars there. Uh, six beliefs. The key one, the, the oneness of Allah. None of this Trinity nonsense. There is one God, one alone. Allah has angels, angels like Gabriel. I've never had a conversation about angels with an atheist. But with Muslim friends, we, I've often had a conversation about angels. Um, 
And angels are great to talk about as a Christian person. Think of all the angels that appear around Jesus' birth and what they're singing and what they're saying. Glory to God in the highest. Peace to men because this baby has been born. Peace to all kinds of people because of this baby. Uh, Third, uh, belief in Allah's messengers and prophets, with Muhammad as the final one. Uh, To some of those prophets, Allah, God, gave books. He gave the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, the Pentateuch, the law, to Moses. Uh, The Zabur, or the Psalms, to David. Uh, The Injil, which seems to be an, an Arabic kind of transliteration of evangel, gospel, to Jesus and the Quran to Muhammad. They believe in a day of resurrection, which will be physical and to judgment. And then what Allah says goes. He has divinely decreed what will happen today in eternity past. So there are similarities, aren't there? Certainly at a verbal level, we pray, Muslims pray. We believe in angels, they believe in angels. But there are differences too beneath those words. So we'll look at it in a minute or two. But what else has important in our Muslim friend's life? Well, Muhammad. Muhammad is very important. He's the best model to follow. He's the one that Muslim people are to emulate. He's their example. So this is um, just a summarized uh, version of the hadith, which gives what Muhammad said and did. Um, the kind of authorized version comes to about this big. And it gives you everything that you need to know about Muhammad so you can follow him properly and know how to live. This book um, is the earliest history. It's in English, so this one isn't the earliest, but it's based on Arabic uh, translation um, of Muhammad's life. Again, what he did, and it becomes very important for people to read this. ISIS say that what they are doing is based on this, in many instances. When I said that to, to one of my Muslim friends, his daughter and my daughter in the same class um, he teaches in a madrasa in Tower Hamlets um, and he's a very gentle man he's written books um, on Islam usually against ISIS version of Islam and has been verbally not physically but verbally attacked for those kind of things and, and when I've shown him this book which he knows about and taken him to passages in it that ISIS have used to justify their behaviour, he said, yes, those things happened. Muhammad did those things. But they're not for us to do. What else has importance in our our Muslim friend's life? On top of page four, often spiritual forces. The word um, genie in English, we get from the Arabic word jinn which is a kind of, not angels, not demons, kind of spirits that are involved between the level of God and humanity. Some are good, some are bad. Uh, And many of my Muslim friends fear their involvement in life. Uh, One family, we used to help their children with their schoolwork. Um, And one time, and uh, one year, the, the, the wife was growing coriander for her husband's curry house, and it grew really well. Uh, the next year, it was growing well, and a neighbour came round and said, your coriander's growing really well, and the next week it all died. And she said to us that that neighbour had put the evil eye on her coriander. Her jealousy of that coriander had kind of created or used the force, the evil force of the evil eye, to destroy that coriander. 
Now, it might have been a slug or a snail that ate the coriander, but it had only happened because of the evil eye. And so she was taking precautions against that. And the last few surahs of the Quran are often recited as a way of warding off evil and jinn. And the third, I think, important thing in most Muslim people's life is a group orientation and identity. Much more than, than us, maybe in a, in a Western individualistic society. It's not so much, I think, therefore I am, but I belong, therefore I am. The global ummah, the brotherhood of believers, is important. On the bad side, it can lead to honour killings, what should be called shame killings, because someone has stepped out of line and brought dishonour on the whole group, and that needs to be sorted out. On the positive side, it can provide tremendous um, identity and security. One friend of mine, he was reading the Bible uh, with a Muslim friend, and that the Muslim friend over time was convinced of what it was saying, that Jesus is this son who can bring a rescue to all kinds of people, including himself. But he said, I cannot follow this because of what will happen to my family. What will happen to my daughters? Who will they marry? They cannot marry anyone in the community if I start following this. The group identity was much more important to him than what he was reading about in the scriptures. Well, how might we respond to those kinds of things? I found a helpful way, something called subversive fulfillment. That sounds a bit grand. Um, It's not that grand at all. But the Bible teaches us that everybody, in some sense, knows the truth about God. Romans 1 is very clear. That people know the truth about God, but they reject it. They push it away. They suppress it. Like a beach ball in, in the sea when you're playing. You push it down. But it keeps popping up. You can't keep suppressing it. <clears throat> and in some ways, you see that within Islam. You see truths being suppressed, but popping up in some way. So it has some understanding of prophethood, but not quite the right one. It has some understanding of God, but not quite what the Bible says. It's pushing it down and popping up. When Paul preached in Corinth to Jewish people who wanted power and to Greek people who wanted wisdom, he preached the cross, 1 Corinthians tells us. And that, to Jewish people, seemed weak, powerless, And to Greek people seemed stupid, foolish. But actually it was God's power and God's wisdom. What the Jewish people and the Greek people wanted, power and wisdom, but they were seeking in the wrong way, was found in the cross. That was where true power and true wisdom were really found. It kind of subverts their desire for power and their desire for wisdom but fulfills it. You want power, you want wisdom, you're looking in the wrong place. Look at the cross. That's where power and wisdom are truly found. And similarly, a friend was talking to a Muslim friend about Ramadan. He said, why do you fast in Ramadan? And uh, the friend said, well, because it helps us to identify with the poor. They They are unintentionally fasting so much of the time. They're going without food for so much of the time. It helps me to feel compassion for them, to feel as they feel, to put myself in their position. And my Christian friend said, wow, yeah, that's quite an amazing thing you could be doing. 
My Christian friend then asked his Muslim friend, so who do you think is the most compassionate being? And the Muslim friend said, oh God, Allah. Allah is the most compassionate. He is the most gracious. And the Christian friend said, absolutely. God is the most compassionate, the most gracious. And he has shown his compassion even more greatly by coming to earth to understand what we are like, to sympathize with us in our weakness, to show us even more compassion. Just as you are fasting to show compassion for the poor, to understand their situation, to help them. So that's what God did as the most compassionate, the most gracious. He took on human flesh and showed his compassion to us. Do you see, it's kind of subverting and fulfilling what our Muslim friends are doing. And similarly, with wanting Muhammad as a perfect role model, I think Jesus is the perfect role model. Of wanting to know God and be united with him, as some of our more Sufi friends might think, who don't so much concentrate on the Quran, but more feelings towards God, you can be united with God through Jesus. So that's kind of third response, subverting and fulfilling things. But what about some specifics? Now, these are some questions that um, I'd been asked before. We'll try and tackle them, and then it'll be time for, for Q&A after that. Not easy answers, I think, for any of these questions, I'm not going to try and be a politician um, and fudge, so please don't think I am trying to fudge, but a lot of these answers are, it depends, okay? But all the time we're trying to navigate between naivety and hostility. Neither of those are necessarily Christian responses. Uh, and there's a book about that on, called Further Resource, uh, Under Further Resources at the bottom. So some people would say, are Muslims taking over? Look at the demographics, look at the birth rates, look at immigration. In Tower Hamlets, are they taking over politically, taking over the council, having a Muslim mayor? Is that happening in London with Sadiq Khan? I received an email a few months ago um, from someone in Nigeria worrying that Sadiq Khan is a Muslim who's going to take over London for Islam. How do we respond to that? Well, in some ways, that's where we started I think we go back to the scriptures and trust in a sovereign God who does move people where they, where they are. And we can still trust him if there is a takeover or not. It's in his hands. But looking at the demography, nobody really knows how birth rates will change. It's interesting in Tower Hamlets. Birth rates amongst Bangladeshi Muslims are coming down as they get more wealthy, as has happened in other communities. Again, when you look at immigration, churches have grown in London because of immigration, whether it's from Eastern Europe or West Africa. So it's a mixed picture. But you could also argue that there might be more white British people maybe in this country if abortion wasn't happening. That's a a hard thing to say, but that's probably a reality. So are Muslims taking over? I don't know. I can't tell you the future. But whether or not they do, we put our faith in a sovereign God who puts people where they are, including me here. Is Islam peaceful? Are all Muslims violent? I often get asked that. Some people have said, and our politicians have said, Islam means peace. It doesn't. Now, that is not to say that Islam means war. Please don't mishear me. Islam, just at a verbal level, doesn't mean peace. It means submission. 
that's not necessarily a bad thing. The Bible is full of submission in different ways. The, the phrase that Islam means peace seemed to first appear in a, a 1930s newspaper in India, according to Nabil Qureshi, who's written a book um, about that. Um, Islam, or the Quran, has peaceful verses. It has verses like there's no compulsion in religion. It also has violent verses. Slay the unbelievers wherever you find them. My madrasa teacher friend would emphasize the more peaceful verses. ISIS might emphasize the more violent ones. In some ways, it's not for me as a Christian to determine what is the meaning of their text. That's for them to decide. But I would suggest that we look at Muhammad's life to see how he interpreted and lived out Islam. And I think there are worrying things about his life. I've done um, other talks about that, which I could refer you to if you'd like to. But most of my Muslim friends are peaceful. They're not violent. But some of them do want Islamic law. One friend um, I I met at a book table. I said, you must follow Jesus. He said, no, you must follow Muhammad. And we parted as good friends and see each other quite frequently. But he said, look, I do want Islamic law. I want Sharia law in this country. I think it is the best way to govern a people. But I don't want that violently. I think it should be kind of chosen. Is the hijab oppressive? Now, we have a problem sometimes in understanding what a hijab or a burqa or a jilbab or other things might be. So what I'm taking this to be is, is it oppressive for a woman to cover her head or face in some way? Sometimes it might be. The Quran says you should cover your chest. The hadith um, uh, makes it um, uh, more expansive and says um, to cover your, your hair. But it's often cultural. I was watching a, a, a video set in the Middle East with some Bangladeshi friends. And, the Malid- and my Bangladeshi friends were really offended by how free the Middle Eastern culture was compared to them. And yet they're both Muslim people. Many women choose to cover their heads, to cover their faces, and haven't been oppressed by their fathers or by their husbands to do so. Some do so for good reasons. They want to embrace their faith more deeply. Some do so for slightly naughty reasons. Um, In Tower Hamlets, some teenage girls um, cover their faces so they can go places where they won't be noticed and won't be known about and have secret meetings with whoever. So it can be done for good or bad reasons, and it's hard for us to judge from a distance. But I think one thing that my wife particularly talks about with her Muslim friends who do cover their face, not just their, their hair, is why do you do that? And the answer is often because it helps men not to lust after me. Um, if I don't cover up, I'm causing them to sin in some way. And in some sense, that, that's an understandable thing. You don't want to cause other people to sin or stumble. But... It does seem to be putting a man's problem on a woman to sort out. Surely a man shouldn't be lustful. How can his heart be sorted out? I think the gospel has the answer to that, through the Holy Spirit changing our hearts. Should I let a Muslim friend pray in my home or my church? Depends. I asked this of various church leaders in Tower Hamlets recently, um, and almost all of them said, no, not in the church. Um, because of the implications and meanings behind it. Um, 
Often people can think that if you prayed in a place, that's become an Islamic space. And you don't necessarily want to do that for a church. And so when these pastors have been asked by different people in, in town hamlets, could they come and pray? They said, well, would you let me pray in your mosque? And they said, no. And kind of conversation around it and dealt with it gently and said, well, as you wouldn't let me pray in a mosque, I can't really let you pray in this church. We're happy to show you hospitality, but, but not in this way. Interestingly, um, when one church leader was being asked this, some Bangladeshi ladies were overhearing it, the conversation. And they spoke to him afterwards and said, thank you for, for not letting that man pray. Because if you did let him pray, then we would feel intimidated and have to pray as well. But we don't want to at the moment. We want to do something different. But in our home, we've let Muslim friends pray. Um, just as an exercise in hospitality. Uh, they know that we are not about to become uh, Muslim and turn our, our home um, into a mosque. But if it's prayer time and it's the best place for them, the safest place for them to pray, we're happy for them to do that. It's not a problem. Then we'll have a cup of tea together afterwards. Some people get quite hung up about food. The last two questions. Can I fast in Ramadan? Can I eat halal food? Yeah, you can do. You can fast in Ramadan if you want to. It's hard work. Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 8-10 through 10 talks about um, loving people so much that you become like them to reach them. So Paul's saying, I become like a Jew to reach the Jews, or a Gentile to reach the Gentiles. So similarly, you could fast during Ramadan so that your Muslim friends understand how you want to become like them in some way to share the gospel with them, to show some kind of compassion for their situation. But you don't have to. Can I eat halal food? Some people get quite hung up. This is Islamic food. It might be demonic food in some way. Well, again, 1 Corinthians 8 through 10 talks about when you can eat food and not eat food. It says that you can eat anything and everything. But if somebody says or thinks that by you eating this food, you have become a Muslim, then it's best not to eat that. You're sending out the wrong message. But again, I've never had a Muslim friend offer me their food and say, you're becoming a Muslim now by eating it. That's never been a problem. And it's usually been very tasty and enjoyable. So those are some specifics. Let's have a break for maybe two minutes. Chat amongst yourselves. Think of any questions that you'd like to ask. I'll give my voice a break and then we'll reconvene in two minutes time. But any questions? And if there are none, we can all go home. If not, we'll carry on till 9.30.